Hi, everyone, and welcome to Location is Everything, Tango's podcast about all things retail real estate. Recently, we held our annual Locations Everything Summit, which was chock full of great roundtable discussions and presentations from retailers and other industry leaders that explored the shifting post-COVID consumer and the resulting impact on the retail and restaurant business model, with a specific focus on the brick and mortar side of the business. We've packaged some of the best sessions as podcasts for those who are more on the go. If you're interested in listening or watching additional sessions, check out this episode show notes for details. Enjoy. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our next session, the new rules of facilities maintenance with Bed Bath & Beyond and Big Lots uh, joining us for this roundtable discussion. Great panel here joining us today of professionals that are living and breathing facilities maintenance on a daily basis in a retail context. I've learned long ago not to try to introduce people, so I'm going to ask them to uh, each go through and, and just give us a little bit of background about themselves, uh, their company portfolio and uh, the group that they're in. So why don't we just kind of go left to right? We'll start with uh, you, Matt. Hi, uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Matt Bargy, uh, Director of Energy and Engineering and Facilities here at Big Lots, uh, located in Columbus, Ohio. Um, been in the industry 20 plus years now in one form or position or another. Um, we're currently operating uh, with 1,415 locations uh, in the United States alone. Um, uh, that's all states, but three, I believe. Um, and, uh, growing fortunately, um, that's all for now, I guess. All right, Jeffrey, Jeff Cavuto, uh, senior project manager for Bed Bath and Beyond facilities. Uh, I've got just shy of 30 years in the industry. Um, our company portfolio is, uh, about a thousand locations, uh, mostly stores, but warehouses and, and some ancillary buildings. Um, yeah, that's that's us. And Lee. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Lee Struthers, Senior Facilities Coordinator for Bed Bath & Beyond. Been with Bed Bath & Beyond um, in at facilities for approximately 21 years. Um, have seen it grow from a couple stores to the thousand that we have now, mostly responsible for uh, data management and processes. Great. Thank you and, and welcome. Okay, I'm going to stop share so I can uh, see everybody up close and personal. Um, all right. So uh, we had an opportunity to kind of meet in advance uh, and, and think of some topics that are important uh, today that many facilities organizations are facing. Um, obviously, there's the reality of COVID and, and what's gone on over the last year and a half. We'll sprinkle that in, into it as well. Um, I think as some additional background in, in uh, addition to what you guys have mentioned so far, maybe if you could paint a little bit of a background uh, regarding uh, your company, uh, some of the main drivers of your business. I know, for example, Bed Bath & Beyond is in a, uh, a nice turnaround mode right now and uh, I, I saw the news about the new flagship store uh, opening up in New York City. That was all over uh, everything. So uh, congratulations to you guys. But why don't you give a little background about the business, what's going on, and then we can uh, ask the same of Matt. Lee, you want to take that? Sure. So Bed Bath & Beyond, as you said, uh, Bed Bath & Beyond is full throttle in our, re our remodel phase. Um, we are 
um, revamping our portfolio, those locations um, that are deemed worthy, so to speak, we are remodeling at this time. It's a three-year, four-year turnaround process. We're working through uh, systematically. We believe that we have a very good um, fixture plan and new finishes that, that we're going to roll out. We're tweaking it as we go, but we've gotten great feedback from from the public and from the industry as well. So we're very excited about that. Um, other than that, we are looking to start the new store program right back up. We it ramped down quite a bit over the last few years, but that's the direction the company's taking and everyone's excited about it. Fantastic. And I believe you're also divesting from a few you have from a few uh, other concepts that were part of the family. We have. So um, a decision was made with the new regime, so to speak, that we would um, really focus on our core values and get back to our core positioning in the industry. So those companies that did not fall in um, alignment with that, we made the decision to, um, to divest them. So we recently sold off Cost Plus World Market and um, the Christmas tree shop. So we wish them well. Um, but we really decided that it's time to focus on our core market positioning, and we know that that is bed, bath, and home. Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, Matt, any uh, background you could provide on, on what's driving Big Lots today? Sure. Um, so we are known, I think, industry-wide as a discount retailer, and uh, we very much take that position from a facilities perspective at times, or that drives our mentality on a facilities from a facilities team. Um, although we are somewhat trying to modify that mentality, um, not just as a discount retailer, but as a retailer with um, competitive and, and great pricing on products and merchandise. Um, we were in an aggressive growth pattern currently as far from a real estate perspective. Um, looking to expand as much as we can our footprint out there um, in a physical building, uh, physical structure uh, standpoint. And also we've, we've kind of ventured into the, uh, the BOPIS category, the buy online pickup in store and the curbside pickup, um, electronic um, ordering and purchasing uh, formats here as of late, that's been a, a nice, we've got a nice boost from that over the last uh, 18 months or so gone through some image override projects, um, much like uh, Bed Bath & Beyond uh, with store refresh projects. Uh, we initiated a Store of the Future project uh, rollout uh, last few years to kind of reface some stores with, with finished work, flooring and, and walls and restrooms and um, ceilings, lighting, that kind of thing. Um, so we're, we're really trying to, um, not trying, but we are initiating an image overhaul process slowly but surely. Um, and then of course, sustainability is always a topic as well uh, from an energy and um, uh, energy and operation standpoint, we're, we're starting to venture more down that path and, and become better at uh, being a, a good partner for the environment and for our, our neighbors around us. Excellent, yeah, sticking with you, what's kind of the bookends of the responsibility of uh, your group there at Big Lots? So there's, there's two uh, primary groups um, that I'm responsible for here. The energy and engineering team uh, are responsible for everything mechanical or electrical in a store, um, primarily HVAC, um, electric and lighting fall under that group. 
individuals on that team have experience and um, history with those uh, items or with those trades. Um, so we manage that very closely with uh, those, those things with that uh, HVAC primarily with that team. Uh, refrigeration and a few other items such as cardboard balers, hydraulic lifts, um, and signage also falls under that group. And then our other, my other team, uh, the property management group, uh, handles everything else, um, plumbing, uh, doors, landscaping, uh, roofing, um, common area stuff, and as well as other um, structural items, um, pest control as well. Um, and then I also am responsible for the energy procurement piece for our business. Um, and uh, we are fortunate enough that we work with a few good outside um, uh, entities for some of the some of the procurement piece, uh, but um, yeah, I guess for for these for, for this conversation's purposes, uh, energy and engineering and property management teams both fall under me. Okay, great. And uh, I forgot to ask before, you know, give us a sense of the box of the store itself. What's your typical square footage and when? Uh, typically, we're a plaza-based retailer. Um, uh, we have I don't think we actually have any standalone properties out there currently. Uh, 30,000 square foot um, is our typical footprint, um, uh, and uh, we do lease 95% uh, of our spaces out there, um, and yeah, I guess that would be the, the high-level overview of it. Right. And from a work order volume perspective, uh, what do you typically do in a month, a year, whatever the normal cadence you look at? So the, the, uh, the break fix type stuff uh, right now, uh, minus scheduled maintenance and that kind of thing, right now we're somewhere between 25000 and 30000 a year. All right. Well, thank you. And uh, over to the Bed Bath & Beyond side, I know Lee and Jeffrey, Jeff, you're not necessarily in the exact same uh, area, so maybe if you could each talk about your, your area of focus in the department. Well, obviously, <clears throat> I'll start with the company focus right now is really uh, enhancing our, uh, our omni-channel experience. We want to be, you know, everywhere the customer wants us to be and be able to do seamless business with them across the various platforms, be it mobile devices, you know, com computer, in-store, online. Um, so that's what the company is, you know, hyper-focused on right now is improving the the customer experience across all platforms. Yeah, and what's your role in that process? Are you? Um, my role in that process really only hits obviously the facility side of the business um, where uh, the in-store experience, the physical buildings that we're, that we're managing that our in-store ex experience for the customer is consistent. Got it, makes sense. Um, and what, Lee, what, what type of uh, major components is your group responsible for from a maintenance perspective? Uh, and, you know, just curious uh, kind of how you're organized. I know it's a bit of a unique um, kind of direct national vendor or regional vendor type of model. So why don't you take us through that a little bit? So Bed Bath & Beyond made the decision um, at the onset of creating this facilities department, our director at the time decided that or made the decision that he felt was right for us. And we've just continued on with that. It's kind of unique that 
our stores really, although we do have a, a full facilities department, um, right now we're at six project managers. We lost a couple with the divestitures, but our stores are really empowered to call the vendors direct. So they call our vendors direct. We don't have a call center in our facilities department. We utilize our vendors, national account vendors, call centers to act on our behalf. And we don't pay them for that. Um, our stores call our vendors directly. They triage right on the telephone and our vendors make the determination as to whether or not a tech should be dispatched. At that time, um, once the tech is dispatched, they tap into our work order management system and create the work order, which is when our team is notified. And from there, it pretty much functions um, very similar to most other um, workflows, I would imagine. But it's that initiation state that is a bit different in the industry. In addition to that, um, those same vendors order materials on our behalf. They create work orders for the suppliers and um, they handle all of the shipping and the tracking of warranties and things of that nature on our behalf as well. So that, that part of our workflow is a bit unique, I, I think. I think that's still a bit unique throughout the industry. Yeah, and just you know, remembering kind of how it was set up, we, we basically took the call center capability within Tango and then handed that out to your vendors to be able to kind of create those work orders and, and dispatch their texts and stuff like that. So it, it's a bit of a unique uh, model, but uh, seems to be working well. Works well for us. For us, it does. <laughs> exactly. Um, and volume-wise, uh, about how many work orders are you guys uh, running through now? So I looked at the numbers this morning. Um, in twenty, COVID was obviously about half of this, about fifty percent in twenty twenty. But um, two thousand nineteen, about sixty thousand demand work orders that would include multi-store rollouts and smaller projects that facilities manages. And for preventative services, some of those work orders are annual, but there were approximately 50,000 preventative work orders. And that's pretty, pretty standard year over year. Year over year, yeah, absolutely. Well, then I think that's a, a good segue into uh, the COVID topic, if you will, uh, and the impact uh, on your businesses and in particular on facilities maintenance. Um, why don't you, uh, Matt, if you could kind of take us a little bit through the journey for Big Lots with COVID. Um, obviously, you said you're in all states, but about three. So you probably had very different experiences depending on geography and, and different case levels and things like that. So what's the journey been like uh, for Big Lots? Well, um, you know, it's uh, kind of a broad question. So I'll try to summarize the best I can. Uh, we uh, we probably had the same trials and tribulations as a lot of other folks um, in the industry. We were fortunate enough to be considered a, um, an essential business, so we remained open uh, all of last year. Um, surprisingly enough, um, you know, we had a very prosperous year as a company, but surprisingly enough, our, our facility maintenance needs um, dropped um, last year. Uh, our typical volume was low. It was lower than our typical volume on the work order side. Um, we did have a uh, an internal committee formed um, to kind of uh, uh, formulate processes and procedures and, and safety protocols and so forth. Of course, we were um, uh, we had mask mandates at the store level. Uh, we have we had cleaning protocols at the store level, uh, which was uh, most mostly manned by the staff, the store staffing, um, to uh, clean go through the cleaning protocols on the sales floor, in the back of house, office and restroom areas. Um, there were certain things that we did limit 
at the store level, such as drinking fountains. Uh, we actually just recently reopened those at the store level. Um, uh, at the general office, we did close uh, the general office uh, in March of last year, and we're just getting to the point of reopening here in the next few weeks, actually first part of September. Mm -hmm. um, and that's going to be kind of a, uh, uh, that there's going to be a flexible schedule still there in place once we do open the general office here in Columbus. Uh, but from a store standpoint, um, we did uh, ask all of our vendors uh, to mask up and, and follow the rules that we're asking our associates and our, and our customers to follow as well. Um, a lot of the uh, service providers that we work with had no issue with that. And they had those a similar similar protocols in place for themselves. Um, fortunately, there were no major hangups from the store service standpoint. Um, I guess if I had to think of one thing that was a bit of a challenge, um, the labor force uh, at the service provider level was uh, somewhat of a challenge. Not all of them came to us and said, hey, we're having a hard time finding folks or, or keeping folks working, that kind of thing. But a few of them did. Um, and usually when where there's smoke, there's fire. So I, I, we kind of gathered that other, other companies were having some similar issues with their labor force. Um, didn't ever boil up to anything um, real significant, uh, maybe a, a longer resolution times on a lot of things, um, but uh, we rarely had to go to a secondary service provider more so than what we already do anyway, uh, because of those challenges. Right, and as far as some of the actions you took, I, I assume, like almost everybody, you, you put some temporary measures into place right away, especially as an essential business in remaining open. You know, was it like the usual plexiglass and wayfinding stickers on the floor and, and those types of things? Uh, exactly. Uh, we had the plexiglass at the at the cash wrap area, the checkout area. Um, we, we did have um, uh, new, um, I'll call them marketing materials, but they were wayfinders. They were there were notification um, labels that were put on doors and also put around the store to um, identify some of the things that we were doing to keep the store clean. And then obviously respectfully ask everyone to play their role in keeping themselves and, and those around them safe uh, during that time. Um, I don't think we've pulled back too much on those things just yet. We, we have um, uh, released the, uh, the mask mandate, at least for those who are vaccinated. Um, and, but we are still very much following cleaning protocols and, uh, trying to, uh, keep everybody there in the store as safe as possible. Yeah, absolutely. And how about for Bed Bath & Beyond? I assume it's a somewhat of a similar journey. It, it you know what, it, it matches pretty closely, uh, mm -hmm. to what Matt just described, you know, early on, um, some of the guidance and direction that was coming out from the CDC. Um, it was a bit confusing, and I imagine just like, you know, uh, just like us, many organizations struggled um, with, uh, with finding, putting together protocols that worked for um, obviously keeping people safe, but that you could also operate, you know, and do business in. And for us, uh, you know, once the closure started, when you were, if you were considered a non-essential business or you went to curbside, you know, uh, buy, buy online, you know, pick up at store and those kinds of things. Um, it, it, it was tough to navigate that initially, but uh, again, I think probably similar uh, to most is once you get 
got your hands around it, you, you were able to operate and do some business. Uh, one of the bigger challenges initially was uh, when they started reducing uh, the capacity in stores. So you, you literally you had to learn, okay, what is the what, what is the fire rating capacity of each site? So that when they reduced, you know, you got to reduce to 50% or 25%. Well, you needed to know what the what the actual capacity of the building of each site was. Yeah. So that was a that was a bit of a challenge. Um, you know, uh, in, in terms of dispatching for, you know, initially, we were dispatching third parties to do COVID uh, cleanings or preventive cleanings, uh, if there was sus, you know, suspected, um, you know, co uh, someone positive, uh, the store would close immediately, uh, third party, either service master or similar type company would come in and clean the facilities. And, and during that time, the company put together a working group, senior management, we brought in outside consultants, including a, a infectious disease doctor, and they developed you know, internal protocols uh, for not only third-party cleaning, but even for our stores that were able to stay open and operate, um, what what they could do as well. So, yeah, um, it was challenging. Yeah. And Matt, did you have on your end um, a, a special group that kind of focused on this as well? Um, yeah, almost the exact same. As Jeff mentioned, the senior leadership group, it was a committee that was formed. We also had an outside specialist a medical specialist that uh, was providing guidance. And uh, we would have a third party company come in as well whenever there was a, um, an indication that there may have been a positive case in the store. Uh, we, we partnered up with a, another national um, cleaning group that would help the stores through those processes because it was a bit of a, uh, there was definitely a, a lengthier agenda when it came to those types of cleaning services. So yeah, we would, we partnered up with that with those folks and um, had the committee, which we still have, and periodically send out uh, updates and and changes or additions to whatever the protocol is currently. And uh, are are either of your respective groups or, or uh, organizations carrying forward a heightened uh, cleaning protocol, if you will? Maybe not necessarily as strong as it was as guidance came out that the you know, surface issue wasn't as big as uh, originally advertised. Um, are you carrying forward some of the cleaning protocols? We, uh, on the Bed Bath & Beyond side, uh, the internal store cleaning uh, or enhanced store cleaning uh, that was instituted at the beginning of COVID still exists today. We are still, we are still cleaning our stores that way. Matt, are you as well? Or? Yeah, same. Um, I, I don't know exactly what the forward direction is, and I'm not sure that the company knows for sure just yet what the forward direction will be. That'll kind of evolve over time. But yeah, very much um, still have those processes in place at the store level. Okay. So with the slowdown, um, I assume there were potentially some budgetary breaks put on some things, or maybe you took advantage of dark stores to maybe hit some deferred maintenance or other things that uh, store touches that need to be done. Uh, did, did any of that happen, uh, Lee and Jeff, on, on your side? Um, Reef, well, again, a good, a good chunk of our chain was shut down uh, yeah. during COVID. Um, we didn't really, um, from a, a, uh, a CapEx uh, refresh or um, major repair program, those basically ground to a halt. 
Um, so we, we didn't engage in, in that kind of work. Um, and then we also, there was obviously significant furlough of employees, including amongst the facilities department. Um, so it, again, cha challenging time. <laughs> yes. And Matt, did, did you guys, um, you know, it doesn't sound like you, you really closed at all, but I assume traffic was down. Did it, did you put the brakes on or did you accelerate? Uh, we definitely put the brakes on early last year, um, going into March when, when things started kind of ramping up with the whole pandemic. Um, nobody knew exactly what to expect. Um, at the time, I don't know, we were sure we were going to be considered an essential business. So we, we were only doing the essential things that we needed to keep the store open and operating in a safe and secure manner. Um, we, uh, we actually kind of maintained that mentality even well into the middle part of the year where we were well established and actually business was, was uh, going pretty well for us, um, but we still were unsure of what, what the future held for us. And so we did ultimately, we, we deferred a lot of things. Um, work orders that come in from the store level do come into my team here and we touch all of them before they get out to a service provider. So we were able to put them in a deferred category uh, we were fortunate enough to be able to go and revisit a lot of those later in the year last year. Um, items that were kind of wish list items or or weren't critical needs at the time when they first came in. Um, so yeah, we we were very we took a very conservative approach early in the year. Yeah, I think that's been pretty much the common thread uh, that I've heard in talking to our clients. Um, Kind of get your uh, senses about you as we're trying to figure out kind of where this is all going. Um, so one one place it did go uh, obviously is a surge in online and other channels uh, that uh, I think both of you have mentioned. Uh, Bopis, you know, buy online, pick up in store, or delivery or other types of things uh, are much more prominent. So how has that shift uh, changed your business and then ultimately um, your group? In any way, are you affected in kind of the scope of what you need to do or, or managing parking lots and things in ways you didn't have to or, you know, cannibalizing some store square footage for that was originally for sales and then dedicating it to kind of micro fulfillment uh, and whatnot. So, uh, Lee and Jeffrey, how has the, the omni-channel uh, impacted your business? Lee, you want to take that? So during, um, at Bed Bath & Beyond during the shutdown, one of the things that really impacted us was we were able to utilize some larger stores as regional fulfillment centers so that we could get the orders to the door or to the curbside as quickly as possible. And it really, really impacted um, the speed in which we were able to fulfill orders because as Matt said previously, um, just the workforce in, in many cases at the fulfillment centers just weren't there. Or the distribution center had a positive hit and needed to shut down for cleaning for a day or two. So turning the, those larger stores nationwide, we had stores actually fulfilling orders um, from, from overstock. So that worked well. We were the, the Bed Bath & Beyond model at the time was to fill the store to the rafters with merchandise and it worked it worked, we've all seen it. It worked really well for us during the early days of the COVID shutdown. Since then, as we've um, kind of finessed the BOPIS program, it really hasn't impacted facilities that much. Most locations, um, just about every location now has some form of BOPIS or, or home delivery. 
Uh, we have utilized some space in the customer service areas as a staging area for those orders. But other than that, there's some signage, um, parking lot signage and interior store signage. But other than that, it really hasn't affected uh, facilities as much as one would think. We, they've set aside some, some new spaces in the area and um, cut out uh, some space in the parking lot or at the curb, but not really much else has changed from a maintenance standpoint. Yeah, and on the, on, on the parking lot front, I would just add that, uh, you know, because nearly all our buildings are leased properties, uh, we've gone back to landlords and asked for, you know, some ded dedicated spaces for, for the BOPIS. Mm -hmm. How is that? Uh, is there a willingness uh, to... From what I've seen, again, it's that piece is kind of out of my wheelhouse. I get the, you know, I take care of the lot. I don't negotiate the lot. Um, so, but uh, is too busy to join today. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, but I've from the little bits that I've seen, I haven't seen any pushback from a landlord, you know, on that. So, absolutely. And Matt, how how is the the Omni Channel working for Big Locks? Uh, well, to stay on that topic, we. Uh, of the curbside, the parking lot signage. Um, that's really been the only thing that's come our direction from it. Uh, we have had a couple of landlords push back on the dedicated spots. Uh, we, we've set up some very non-intrusive signing signage in the parking lots, basically a heavy base movable signage sign that you can put out there and dedicate a couple, two to four spots. Um, a, a couple landlords have pushed back, very small percentage, um, and it usually just equates to a uh, kind of an after the fact um, apology and, and, and uh, request for permission type thing, and they're usually accommodating. They just want to make sure we know that they know we've done this. In the park. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't approach them proactively about it, which um, I didn't have any part of that conversation from a store operations standpoint. I, I may have suggested that, but we've kind of gone to a uh, ask for forgiveness after the fact type approach on those. Uh, but the good news is most landlords have been very accommodating and understand that the industry is kind of going in that direction. Um, the only other item that we have had to put in place um, for the uh, ship from store um, type uh, process that we've initiated are some uh, extra registers or cash uh, check stands in the warehouse area. Um, essentially providing quicker access to our, our shipping partners and um, not a major um, burden to any to the store teams, assuming they have the space to handle it in their in their warehouses. And, and it's just a matter of adding an extra um, electrical circuit and a, and a drop to the communications. Um, but very few stores have done that. A small percentage of stores have done that so far. Yeah. And We've had a number of retailers kind of talk about this, you know, Loblaws, Wawa, um, Polaris, and others uh, of thinking through ways to adapt the store format uh, going forward, whether it's a series of projects to touch existing stores or a new prototype experimentation that is more uh, multi-channel. Um, are you guys experimenting with that at all uh, in, in looking at new ways to kind of serve those different channels? Uh, from the physical store itself? No, not that I'm aware of. Um, the the BOPIS and the, the curbside pickup has been, there's been a heavy focus on those here as of late. I don't, I don't think, and I could be maybe outside of those conversations uh, that I couldn't speak uh, uh, to it uh, at great length, but no, nothing on our side. 
And how about uh, for Bed Bath & Beyond? Are you looking at ways to kind of optimize the existing fleet uh, or omni-channel and or kind of play with some new prototypes? I know when we were talking to Wawa, for example, their challenge is every inch of their convenience store is accounted for uh, for some type of existing purpose. And that's been optimized for that in-store customer for the last 40 plus years. And now all of a sudden they're being forced to you know, a place for someone to pick up deliveries and, you know, new equipment coming in and other things that have really made it difficult to understand kind of how to optimize, uh, not just in-store, but the other ones, the other channels, which um, almost across the board um, are lower margin uh, channels for uh, almost all retailers, with maybe the exception of Bopis, because you're bringing people into the store and they're, they're seeing new merchandise, maybe making some purchases that weren't planned. But uh, are you guys experimenting at all with the with the prototype or the store format? Uh, absolutely. Not only not only with fleet optimization, but within uh, with store optimizations and, and space optimization as well. Obviously, uh, you know, it's, uh, our flagship in New York City reopened today. Um, you know, and that's a that that's a big deal for us. That's kind of the um, the end result of a, of a lot of experimentation and, and tweaking. Uh, the place is beautiful. It is. It is stunning. It's a, it's a really really nice store, um, and you know that's our look. That's our that's the model going forward for the company. Uh, and then you know we have got a, a pretty aggressive refresh program going on, uh, remodel and refresh. And uh, you know we're going to touch over four hundred stores uh, and and get them the latest and greatest. Uh, and, and really the the space, our our revamp space is just a night a really nice shopping environment less cluttered uh, more 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 space and and open pathways for the customer to really shop you know to, to shop our offerings uh i'm actually i'm really excited uh, about where we're headed it's it, it's it really is uh it's it's a sharp looking prototype that's great i know lee you're, you guys have your hands in these these refreshes and touches rollout type stuff um, are you guys looking to manage that uh, uh, go forward as well in the system? No, no. Actually, um, as Jeffrey mentioned, the the remodel refresh program is so extensive right now that we've galvanized a, a whole new team um, to to manage it because it's just so aggressive. You need a you need a full team doing just remodels in order to manage it. So I mean, facilities obviously gets involved with the bits and pieces at the end um, to help wrap things up as necessary. But really, this new team is managing the remodel program. Yeah, makes sense. Okay, um, I want to shift a little bit to kind of the back to basics, if you will, around maintenance and kind of talk about some of the uh, main objectives of what you're working on as a group. Uh, that you're trying to get better at or, or improve uh, in, in the maintenance area. Matt, what are the main kind of themes of what you're working on now? Well, we, we're always trying to um, polish um, how we're spending the company's money, essentially, right? We, we, are, a, we are a cost center. Um, and so it's always our job, to, or it's always our priority to try to limit um, the spend as much as we can. Obviously, we have to spend money. So we're one of those things that we do to try to control that is is um, evaluate our vendor base um, as often as we can. Uh, we have gone through um, scorecarding processes with a lot of our vendors, and uh, that's proven to be very uh, beneficial for us. Mm -hmm. um, it's a slow process at times, but 
or slow progress anyway. Um, that's something that we're always trying to uh, get better at. Um, we're fortunate enough, the, the two groups that I have in place, uh, we have managers for those groups that um, are, are spearheading those scorecarding processes. Um, HVAC, plumbing, um, automatic doors, uh, three of our higher spend categories that we want to focus on to try to um, uh, evaluate who we're using, where we're using them. Um, we've come to the conclusion, you know, as, as we go through the scorecarding process, the more we can put in place self-performing service providers, um, typically the better our spend looks in those markets. Um, that's not always easy, and you can't have a self-performer in every market and every nook and cranny of the country. Um, and and at times, it also that also limits your ability to go to a secondary vendor um, versus having national companies who will service you anywhere and everywhere and in just about every trade. They definitely have their value, um, and um, they're really handy when you need a secondary somewhere behind a primary or, or behind a self-performer. Uh, but Scorecarding and, and evaluating our vendor base is something we're always um, looking at and trying to improve upon, uh, which we feel is, has a major impact on our overall spend and our overall burden to the company, if you want to put it that way. Mm -hmm. um, we're also uh, focusing on coaching and, and training the store teams on what it is that um, they're submitting and, and properly submitting those things to us uh, with pictures, with details, uh, with the urgency of the need. Um, of course, everything that comes in from the store is an urgent matter, but um, over the years, we've gotten better at, at pushing back um, the, the team that we have in place. Like I said, we touch everything that comes in. Uh, there are very few and frankly, almost no items that go directly from store to vendor these days. Um, and so, uh, they can see when we push back the comments that we're asking or the feedback that we're asking for. Um, and that's a constant um, coaching opportunity for us here um, with the turnover at the store level or the distance between the time a store puts in the first work order or their second one. Things obviously get lost in the shuffle, but um, we work closely with our operations team and, and they're a good partner of ours to, to help get the messages to the field and and help them become self-sufficient as well before we have to uh, roll a truck to a store. Uh, we ask them to do some very basic things to try to help themselves through, a, whether it's through a plumbing issue or through a flooring issue or uh, a door repair of some kind. Um, uh, I think we lost your audio. Is that just me or? We lost them. Uh-oh. Now that you're back. <laughs> Yeah. Looks like my internet connection might be a little unstable, it says. So. But no I think I got to Yeah, on the vendor side, uh, just curious, do you allow the stores to do some of that vendor uh, selection or is it managed centrally? Uh, no, we, we, hand, we, we keep that here centrally at the, at the general office. Um, we used to, um, uh, three and a half, four years ago, we did have a scenario where stores were contacting vendors directly for services. And um, we've modified that over the last three years um, and uh, keep it all centrally located here. Uh, we go through vetting processes before we onboard new vendors. Uh, we have a process in place to um, get referral references and, and obviously the, the necessary paperwork before we do so. 
But even before that, we want to identify that we have a need somewhere within a trade or within a market. Um, we have a need for somebody new, whether it's expanding one of our existing providers or uh, bringing on somebody new organically into the mix. Um, so, uh, but we do that all here internally in my group. Yeah. Great. Okay, so Bed Bath & Beyond side, what are you know, some of the focuses today for maintenance? What are your initiatives that you're working towards today? I think that um, a lot of what Matt said flows right through to Bed Bath & Beyond. Um, as things start to stabilize and right size and the, the request for service picks up, um, we're really taking this opportunity as things are relatively calm right now um, to really take a look at our vendor base. We, Bed Bath & Beyond facilities just went through quite a large um, RFP. We have some new vendors based on um, perceived savings and expanded services. Um, so a lot of our legacy vendors made the cut, but many didn't. Um, with that comes brand new reporting. We use Tango for a lot of it. Um, brand new reporting on work order volume, spend um, based on trades and subtrades, and a brand new vendor scorecard, something that we've never really done before. So it's brand new. Um, and it's all in an effort to drill down that bottom line. I think that um, we need to keep the stores happy. So that matters also. The SLAs as well, a lot of focus on SLAs this year, getting the documentation in, closing that loop of after the service is completed, how long it takes to get the invoices in because all of that's gonna help the budget, the accruals. It all flows through to the end of the line when we close that loop. So a lot of focus in the last, uh, I would say two years or so, um, a lot of focus on reporting, assessing the information. We took the, the COVID lull kind of, um, so to speak, we took that time to really re rework a lot of our reports, rethink a lot of how we analyze the data. And it really is now as we, things ramp back up over the last six months or so, really has um, made, made us really rethink how how vendors are servicing the stores and what our expectations of them are. Not just, can you turn a wrench, but all of the reporting and the administration that goes along with it. So that has all been very big focus for, for facilities right now. And interestingly enough, uh, you guys share some vendors in common and I know uh, they sign into Tango and uh, the respective companies they work for and, and, and service them. So uh, that's pretty interesting. Um, Let's shift uh, to the asset side of, of things. Um, I know it's an important area. Um, uh, Matt, how, uh, how are you guys tracking your assets today? And are you uh, focusing on kind of capturing more and more of that data so you can better understand asset life cycles and replace uh, requirements and things like that? Yep, um, so we are, are, the primary focus that we have in asset um, collection is, is, is HVAC. Uh, you, you know, our stores have an average of six to seven units on the, on the building, some upwards of 20, and some of them only have one. Um, so from a site-to-site -site, uh, comparison, it can be very different, but HVAC is um, an, uh, the most important asset for us to try to collect and, and, and keep uh, for planning purposes, mostly for year-to-year -year budgetary capital uh, replacement planning purposes. 
Um, we want to understand what the age is, what the condition is, um, uh, what the, what our spin looks like. There's different schools of thought on whether or not you replace a unit that you put a lot of money into versus a unit that hasn't had any breakdowns, but it's 20 years old. You know, um, we 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 go through those conversations internally. We rely on our service providers to um, make sure we have updated information. Uh, we used to have a, a spreadsheet that we would track that information on. Now we utilize the um, the asset database in Tango and we can efficiently pull that information out of the system, update update the information, deactivate and, and add new units whenever we do a replacement job. Um, and then we have a process in place to evaluate um, those assets on a year-to-year -year basis, which ones are our priority for replacement based on lease term and uh, store performance and, and then obviously the, the, the age and the, uh, the investment that we put in that equipment. Um, Actually, that was a question that just came in from uh, the audience was, how do you proactively look at the replacement uh, of HVAC in particular? Um, so you guys are on an annual basis, you're, you're doing those assessments? Yep. Um, yeah, we are, we're given only so much money to spend on that. And, you know, if we, if we could every year, we would we would refresh the entire fleet, anything that's eight, 15 years or older. Um, typically 15 is our, is our line that we draw. Um, if it's at that age, okay, how much more time do we have at that store? If we put new equipment on there, we want to have at least three to five more years on our current lease term. Um, and usually we have options beyond that, but that's, that's kind of where the, um, that's, that's kind of where the threshold is. Um, we also look at um, the need on a store by store basis. Um, we can we can narrow it down to the, the age of the equipment, those that are 15, 20 plus years old. That's what ASHRAE says is the life cycle of, an, of a commercial HVAC unit, 15 years. Um, at that point, we've seen and we can show that uh, that's where we start seeing major breakdowns with compressors or coils needing replaced and other minor components on a unit. So that's kind of where we start. Then we start, we look at the, the store uh, performance itself, lease, the, uh, the IRR, the profitability of the store, um, and then what's been our history. Sometimes we can just show this has been a, a lemon of a unit um, and we want to get rid of it so that we're not causing the store downtime and we're not putting a lot of money in this year over year. Um, so it's not an easy process. Um, I'm sure everybody has the same struggles. Uh, we have I think 11,000 HVAC units on our buildings out there. So there's a, there's a lot of different, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of equipment on a year-to-year -year basis that qualifies. Unfortunately, you know, we, we can only do so many with the funding that we're given. Mm -hmm. um, okay. Yeah, a question on that as well is, uh, are you doing this proactively when you're entering into a new deal or a new location? Are you assessing the units then? Uh, yes, definitely. Um, and that's a fairly new task. Well, not new, I'd say within the last 15 years for us, uh, beyond that, before that, you know, we were taking what we could get. Um, but fortunately, uh, when we enter into a new space, HVAC is given great consideration. And oftentimes, unless it's five years or, or newer, we'll, we'll replace it. We'll add that into the construction budget or we'll um, negotiate that into the lease with the landlord. Yeah, that makes sense. So on the Bed Bath & Beyond side, assets, uh, what's, you know, I know this is a constant battle to try to get your arms around 
the assets uh, within locations and, and the conditions, all the stuff that Matt was talking about. Where are you on that journey? Well, um, surprisingly similar to Matt, and even though uh, I don't manage that piece of the program at Bed Bath & Beyond because of the way the department is structured, um, just listening to Matt, I know that our program is very similar. You know, obviously lease consideration is, is huge where we are in, in, in the current cycle. Uh, obviously existing age, what's the repair history? I know we track all the repair history over the life cycle of unit. Um, I was curious as to whether Matt came up with that special formula of a 15 year old unit that historically is not giving you a problem and whether you replace them or, you know, or not, um, that's kind of the magic bullet. But uh, like, uh, like big lots, you know, we're given a certain amount of funds to do those, to do those replacements and you're, you're picking obviously the ones that need the most help. Right. And the only thing that I would add to that is that um, in addition to the, the life cycle of the lease, we also, one of the data points that we rely heavily on is cost per ton. How much is it costing us to keep that unit operating? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, one last subject before we wrap up here is, uh, you know, the other side of the coin, the scheduled or preventative maintenance side of things. Um, how, uh, how is that part of the business going? What are your, some, some of your areas of improvement? I know um, in, in talking uh, in advance of this, Matt, I think some of the scheduled maintenance you handle in the system, other ones that are a little more voluminous, if that's even a word, um, uh, you handle uh, kind of differently. Um, why don't you take us through a little bit of the scheduled maintenance side of things? And have you seen any improvements there that have, that have been reflected in less reactive? break-fix type of activity? Um, yes, actually this year has been a, a pretty good example for us. Um, we, we do, the only trade that we currently um, manage through um, Tango is HVAC, HVAC uh, scheduled maintenance. Um, so we we have a reoccurring task in the system to, pop, to create those in the schedule that we've created. Um, and it helps us um, kind of manage and uh, keep a good eye on how frequently vendors are getting the PMs done starting in the early spring. And hopefully everything is done by the time you get into May, which is a true definition of, you know, doing a cooling startup. By the time you're in May, every unit, most units are going to be running and cooling. And you'd like to have your technicians or your company's eyes on them and hands on them before you get to that point. Um, we, we, we measure the success there through, you know, our work order volume, uh, how often are we getting callbacks after the PM has been performed, um, and, um, uh, things such as a water leak, you know, those are the types of things that are on every task sheet for an HVAC inspection. And, and are we getting water leaks at stores after a PM is being done? Well, if that's the case, how often is it happening for company A, B, or C? And, and company A needs to be reeled in and, and, and made aware that we, we know this is happening and that means maybe they're not doing an efficient PM. Um, uh, the other trades that we don't keep in the system, uh, such as uh, pest control, fire life safety, um, landscaping, um, lot sweeping, those types of things, we do rely heavily on our contractors to keep either a portal available to us for access or, um, or a spreadsheet of some kind of a tracker, some kind of a tracking mechanism, then the subsequent invoicing that we receive, we, we audit to make sure things are, are happening. You know, an invoice isn't necessarily a good way to prove something's happened, but at least you have documentation to show that it's supposed to be happening. <laughs> um, it, 
keeping those things, um, developing schedules for those things in the system just isn't feasible for us right now. Anything outside of HVAC. And on the Bed Bath & Beyond side, I know Lee, you've got uh, you know a lot of vendors doing uh, a lot of competitive work. You know, we're uploading invoices in mass. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you're how you're handling that side of business? Yeah, so most of our most of our preventative services are managed in Tango. Um, HVAC is handled very similar to what Matt described. It's a one-to-one, um, one work order for one service. And we, the expectation is that the vendor manages the work order and shut it down once the service has been completed. For a lot of our other services, um, VT inspections, floor, and Jeffrey can speak to floor care, to the floor care program, but a lot of those other services are annual work orders um, because it is massive eventually um, in a perfect world, it would always be a one-to-one service, but with floor care and pest control and land lot services, it's just not feasible right now. So we're giving an annual work order. Everything gets applied to that one work order. And really we're relying heavily on the vendor to keep um, service by service reporting data available to us through either spreadsheets or their own portals. Um, we do for all of our scheduled maintenance services and all of our invoices in general for our national accounts, we do utilize Tango to import um, invoices into those work orders. So we don't have to do a one by one, um, one by one manually account for each one of those invoices. But it, it is, it's all handled in Tango, whether as a one to one or one to many for preventative services. Yeah, whatever the particular cadence. Mm-hmm. And you've got those, I think you've got some flags and checks and balances on the invoice side of things to kind of make sure that uh, yep. you're staying with bounds uh, contractually. Right. Yep, we do use Tango to monitor duplicate duplicate invoices over the not to exceed or that the work order itself is still open. Well, uh, this has been fascinating. Uh, we're up at our 55 minutes kind of on the button. so. I want to uh, thank Matt, Lee, and, and Jeff for uh, joining from uh, Bed Bath Beyond and Big Lots. An important part of what we call store life cycle, and it's an interesting time we're all in, and we're finally coming uh, out of it. Whole, hopefully, knock on wood. Uh, and appreciate uh, you joining and sharing your perspectives. Thanks for listening to this session from Tango's Location Is Everything Summit. For more sessions from the summit, check out the show notes for details. See you next time.